If you would open your Bibles and turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings 19. We'll be looking at the first 18 verses. First Kings 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword, that is, the prophets of Baal. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the, one, as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And I think actually, as, as I'll, I'll um, make the point in the sermon, this should, would better be translated as, and then he saw, and he arose, and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. For the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet 
I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And it is our desire to meditate on it, think on it deeply, to delight in what you've revealed about yourself here. And so we need your help that we might see you clearly. Father, we thank you for what this passage reveals about you uh, being a God who deals tenderly with your servants. And so, Lord, as we study the passage together, what might we... Uh, might we walk away from here uh, with a, a, deeper, uh, a deeper appreciation for your tender care. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are times when you come to a passage of Scripture, uh, one that you think uh, you're somewhat acquainted with, uh, and you come with uh, certain assumptions only to find out uh, that there's more going on than meets the eye. So as you uh, uh, dig and poke and prod uh, the passage seeking to unearth its treasures, you find out uh, uh, that it's much uh, different uh, than, you, uh, than you expected. Uh, there's things there that uh, you weren't looking for. And uh, there's a lot of good that comes with this experience. Uh, it serves as a lesson in uh, humility. Uh, we don't have everything figured out. Uh, we're not uh, mental study Bibles that just have all the answers uh, ready to go. Um, it, it's also a good thing in that it, it serves as a reminder uh, that uh, as we want to grow in the knowledge of the truth, uh, that requires effort. It requires study, it requires applying ourselves to understand uh, what the text says and not what we think it says. It also uh, should serve as an encouragement that when we apply ourselves to the work of studying uh, the Bible uh, in faith and in reliance upon the Holy Spirit, that we can anticipate uh, the joy of discovery as we learn new things about who God is and who we are and about what God uh, has done and is doing. And that's been my experience with 1 Kings 19 this week, that uh, as I begin uh, the work of studying this passage, reading through it, uh, um, looking up words and places and cross-references, consulting uh, with the commentators, uh, that there is more that is going on in 1 Kings 19 uh, than initially meets the eye. For understandable reasons, uh, the passage is often uh, um, treated as a close-up depiction of Elijah's depression or Elijah's failure of faith. After uh, a great victory, it's thought here we have a picture of the prophet uh, doing an emotional nosedive. Uh, Elijah has cracked up. He's lost sight of the Lord. There are those uh, that see in this passage a whiny, sniveling, self-interested prophet. Take, for example, uh, Merrill Unger, who writes, What a contrast! Elijah the hero on Carmel, victorious over Baalism. Elijah, the coward of unbelief at Horeb, self-occupied, utterly discouraged, wishing to die, praying against rather than for God's people. Well, is that true? Have we given Elijah a fair shake? Is this how uh, the scripture is portraying Elijah, or is there something else that's going on here? I want to suggest to you this morning that there is something else indeed going on, uh, certainly we catch Elijah in a dark moment. 
Uh, He's clearly depressed. He's despondent. He wants to die. His heart's anguished. Uh, But he's not, uh, this isn't because he's uh, self-preoccupied. His grief is not primarily for his own cause, but for the Lord's cause and for the Lord's church. So here's what we'll find as we look together at this passage. When God's people, like Elijah, are tempted to despair because God's cause has faltered, seemingly, God reassures his people that he is still advancing his purposes powerfully through his word of judgment and grace. As we consider this passage together, we'll look first at Elijah's despair and how the Lord responds to that, and then we'll look at Elijah's case or Elijah's accusation and the Lord's response. Now, as we come uh, to our account this morning, we need to remember where we've been. You may remember from our last study in uh, Elijah's life that he had just been involved in uh, the epic showdown with the prophets of Baal. Baal, a false god of the nations that surrounded God's people, had captured uh, their affections under the leadership of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. But at Mount Carmel, the Lord, through Elijah his prophet, showed with an unmistakable clarity, an unmistakable power that he, not Baal, was the Lord. And what's more, we saw, as you might recall, that God wanted his people to see that he was a gracious God who turned wandering, idolatrous hearts back to himself. Well, in the contest, Baal does not respond. He does not answer to the prayers and pleadings of his prophets. The Lord, however, does answer the prayer of his prophet. Uh, When Elijah prays, the Lord responds by sending fire from heaven to consume the offering. And in response, Israel falls on their face in fear and in worship. And then the prophets of Baal are executed in judgment. Baal's been exposed as a sham, as a counterfeit. And then finally, Elijah prays and rain comes to end the drought that had decimated the land for three years. Now, without a doubt, this public showdown that Elijah was involved in uh, was the greatest moment in Elijah's life and ministry. And that's saying something, because this is a guy who has raised someone from the dead. Elijah had experienced one of the greatest days in public ministry ever to take place. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine the excitement that would have come from Mount Carmel. It would be like uh, coming to church for a a recharged prayer meeting and the auditorium is filled with all people you don't know and the overflow room is filled and the classrooms are filled uh, and and, uh, the Lord just shows up in power and you would walk away going, wow, that was incredible. What a day. So as Elijah races uh, from where he was to Jezreel, you, couldn't, uh, you can imagine that, that his mind is, is racing. Uh, there's work to be done, I'm sure Elijah's thinking. He's thinking uh, there are altars that need to be rebuilt. There are prophets that need to be trained. There's discipleship and Bible studies uh, that need to, to happen. And Elijah's mind is, is racing with these things as he planned for the spiritual reformation that the Lord was about to, to bring in to Israel. You can't uh, blame Elijah if he had high hopes for what Mount Carmel would mean to God's people. Well, uh, when 
Ahab gets home to the royal palace. He reports to Jezebel what had happened at Mount Carmel. He explains to her that Baal didn't show up. He explains about the fire from heaven. He explains about the slaughter of her prophets. Now, at this point, Jezebel uh, has a choice to make. She could have concluded uh, that she had placed her hope in the wrong God. In the face of this overwhelming evidence, she could uh, have fallen on her face as Israel did at Carmel, and she could confess that the Lord, He is God. But this is not her response. She hears Ahab out, and she draws only one conclusion. And boys and girls, you can sort of imagine Jezebel uh, hissing this through her teeth. Elijah must die. Now you want to ask, how could Jezebel be so blind, so foolish, so, so in, incredibly just obtuse? Fire comes from heaven. The drought ends. All this is done in, in, uh, in the presence of, of many witnesses, including her husband, which is no, uh, who is no friend of the Lord. And your response to this testimony is to kill the guy whose God this was. And yet, of course, Jezebel is just one example of several in the Bible in which the hardness of man's heart uh, engages in blind, willful resistance to the truth of God. Think, of course, of Pharaoh, who utterly refuses to bend the knee to God, though ten plagues uh, ripped through the land of Egypt. He won't let God's people go. Or in Jesus' own day, as he performed many signs and wonders, and yet the apostle John tells us that his fellow Jews didn't believe in him because they were blind and hard of heart, John 12. The irrationality of sin means that Jezebel can have all the evidence right there, right in front of her face, and yet she can suppress the truth. Now, to understand uh, Elijah's response in the rest of the chapter, there is, as I alluded to when we were reading our passage, a matter of translation that we need to attend to. In our ESV, or English Standard uh, Version Bibles, uh, we read in verse 3, Then he, Elijah, was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba. Now, this reading might give you the impression that Elijah's actions in the rest of the chapter are motivated by fear. They're motivated by a a faltering confidence toward God. They're motivated by self-concern. Elijah has courage on the mountaintop, but he's a coward at the palace. Now, I don't doubt that Elijah was afraid when Jezebel cast her murderous gaze on him. But I don't think the ESV has gotten the reading correct here. Uh, In the traditional Hebrew manuscript, uh, verse 3 uses the word to see instead of to fear. Now, the words are are very close in the Hebrew, and there's some older manuscripts that have to fear. But I think that the King James Version is closer to the mark when it reads, and when he, Elijah, saw that, meaning uh, Jezebel's response, he arose and went for his life. The difference is that Elijah's flight is spurred not simply because his life is in danger or because he fears, but uh, his flight is, is because he sees that in spite of recent events, Jezebel's grip on Baal and her grip on the levers of power in Israel were not weakened in the least. Dale Ralph Davis, whose commentary has been quite helpful in going through Kings, puts it this way. Hence, Elijah saw that in spite of the Carmel apologetic, nothing was going to change in Israel. 
Jezebel was still wearing not only the pantyhose but the pants in the kingdom and calling the shots. Since he was not required to be meek meat under Jezebel's guillotine, guillotine, uh, Elijah left the kingdom, but not because he was afraid of dying. Rather, he wanted to die, for he was broken. He did not wish to die at Jezebel's hand, for that would be judged her victory, and hence his flight. Elijah, upon seeing that the primary promoter of of, uh, Baal remained entrenched in the palace, he flees a hundred miles and falls into despair. Elijah is utterly discouraged. He wishes that he would die. Not even the greatest uh, moment, the greatest day that he's ever had in ministry has had an effect on the king and queen. He only runs away so that his death could not be credited to the wicked Jezebel. Friends, this is ministry discouragement in all its gloom. But the Lord's not done with his servant. He will not leave him in the depths to think that all is lost. He sends a a messenger. He sends an angel who touches Elijah and provides him with a warm meal and some water. Now, Elijah eats, uh, but he, like uh, not a few teenagers I know, decides he's not able to get up, and he goes back to sleep. Presumably, he's in no condition, either physically or emotionally, to go on. But God graciously gives Elijah a second wake-up call, another meal, and he sends him on a journey. Now, there's a tenderness here that we should notice in God's dealings with Elijah. Uh, and and uh, it's yet another reason why I think that we shouldn't uh, understand Elijah here as, as simply going into the desert to have a pity party. When Elijah is in his darkest hour, the Lord doesn't rebuke him, as we might expect if he was just a sulking prophet. But the Lord instead provides for Elijah's weakness. He does it twice giving him food and drink. Now we can infer from, verses, uh, from verse 7 that Elijah was given instructions as to what he should do, and verse 8, I think, gives us a clue as to what those instructions were. And Elijah arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Now, this is an important verse. This isn't just sort of an interesting travel detail here. The author of Kings is not uh, um, just sort of wasting space, but he's dropping clues for us so that we can make a connection with another biblical prophet. Now, you might be familiar with Mount Horeb's other name, Sinai. It was at Mount Horeb or Sinai that God had gathered his people after he had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. It was on the mountainside of Horeb that God met with Moses, 40 days and 40 nights, another interesting connection. It was at Horeb that God had entered into covenant with Israel, and he had said, if you will indeed, in, uh, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. It was at Horeb that God had established the expectations for his gracious covenant. He had delivered his people from slavery, and now they were to live in a particular way in light of that, as they were identified as God's people. They were to love God, and they were to worship God alone. It was at Horeb that God's people were expressly warned by God's prophet Moses, take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make carved images or idols, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, 
a jealous God, Deuteronomy 4. It was also at Horeb that the wayward, idolatrous nature of God's people was anticipated. Israel, after they had already heard God's voice thunder from the mountainside, and after they had trembled in fear, recognizing that God was speaking to them, they quickly decided that they would make a golden calf to worship. It was at Horeb that God's prophet Moses would deal with God concerning God's idolatrous people. Now, God could have dealt with Elijah at any mountain. Horeb was another 200 miles from where Elijah had first camped out in Beersheba, but God sends Elijah to Horeb precisely because he wants us to have in the background the fact that God had entered into a special covenant relationship with his people. And that they had, in that covenant, they had devoted themselves to the Lord in obedience. Now, within the context of this special covenant relationship, God had promised his people that he would bless their obedience, that they would be his treasured possession, and they would flourish. But he had also warned them that if they broke covenant, if they, had, if they turned to other gods, if they sought to be like the nations, then they would be cursed. Just read Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 is one of the most important chapters in the Bible for understanding the Old Testament. There we read that covenant faithfulness equaled blessing for Israel. Covenant faithlessness resulted in pestilence and and plague and defeat and servitude. So when Elijah, who had just witnessed the uh, obstinate idolatry of Israel, when he arrives at Horeb and he stands in the place where God had entered into this relationship with his people, this covenant relationship, Elijah stands there and his presence is, in a way, a, a condemnation of Israel. He's there because of Israel's infidelity, Israel's faithlessness. So as Elijah stands on Horeb, the Lord asks him, Elijah, what are you doing here? Now again, some have taken this to be a a chiding question on the Lord's part, uh, sort of like uh, when I find my toddler playing in uh, the bathtub when they're not supposed to be. But I think that there's good reason here to believe that Elijah is uh, exactly where the Lord wants him. And this isn't a scolding question, but this is a, a fatherly invitation. God sent him here to Horeb. He's, uh, he agrees with what Elijah will say, as we'll see. And so this isn't a scolding, this is an invitation to pour out his heart. He's, it's more like a, a father when he, he sees his, his son distraught and he says, what's the matter, son? So at the invitation, Elijah unburdens himself before the Lord. Now the stress in Elijah's complaint is again on the offenses against the Lord, not upon personal grievances, He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, your altars, that's where the stress is, your altars they have thrown down, and your prophets they have killed with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah stands where God, uh, through Moses, had established his covenant with Israel, But he stands there to bring accusation against them for breaking that covenant. Elijah is, in a manner of speaking, coming before the Lord as a prosecuting attorney, and he's coming with charges in hand. 
God's people, his covenant people, had turned to other gods. They had turned to Baal. They had broken covenant. Uh, they, they had made images. They had sought to be like the surrounding nations. Sure, at, at Carmel, Israel, perhaps even Ahab, had fallen on their faces in fear and worship of the Lord. But as soon as Ahab tells Jezebel what had happened, it becomes clear that at a national level, nothing has changed. It was all the same. Even with the powerlessness of Baal being exposed, Baal was still being propped up by the royal couple. So we've seen uh, the prophet's despair, and we saw how the Lord graciously provided for him. And now we see that the despairing prophet brings his accusation against Israel, and the question is, how will the Lord respond? Well, his answer to Elijah begins with three dramatic displays of power. First, of course, there's the great and strong wind that devastates the, the mountainside, causing all sorts of destruction. Next, there comes the earthquake. The Lord shakes the foundations of the earth. And then comes the display of fire. And after each of these, we're told that the Lord was not in them. But then came the still, small voice, as the King James Version has it. It was the hushed voice of God. And while the Lord was not in the cataclysmic events that came before, God was to be found in the voice. And what's the point of all this? Well, remember, Elijah's despairing because even the cataclysmic fire which rained down at Mount Carmel did not change the spiritual outlook of God's people. God was revealing that, uh, who he was at Mount Carmel, but since this was met by Ahab and Jezebel with rejection... God was showing that his regular mode of showing who he was would no longer be dramatic and thunderous. Instead, God would be showing himself through his word. Now, we're helped to understand what this means uh, by how God responds to Elijah's answer the second time. Elijah, again, brings his accusation before the Lord when the Lord asks what he's doing there, and then the Lord speaks right away. And it's clear from verse 15 and following that the Lord agrees with what Elijah has said. He agrees with Elijah's accusation. The people are flagrant covenant breakers. The people deserve judgment. And God sustains the charge. But when God speaks, we hear his voice. We hear his word. And, he's, and, and it makes clear that it's by this word that he intends to make himself. He, he, he intends to make his power known. And he'll do this by speaking both a word of judgment and a word of grace. The word of judgment will come through the activity of three men, Hazael, the king of Syria, Jehu, uh, the king of Israel, and Elisha, who would exceed, uh, succeed Elijah as prophet. The Lord was serious about his covenant with his people. He wasn't just going to pass over these transgressions or, or ignore them. He wanted Elisha to know that Ahab and Jezebel, the forces of Baal, they wouldn't come out on top. God's word would be at work to ensure that it was clear that they had been wrong about Baal. And yet notice that God's powerful working is not characterized by judgment only. It's also characterized by a word of grace. Elijah comes to Horeb with his case set against God's people. Because of their covenant breaking, because of their sin, God's people deserve nothing but judgment. That's Elijah's case. But the, the God who had entered into covenant with his people was also a merciful God. 
He's also a God who is abounding in steadfast love towards his people. And this God speaks a word of grace. He says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. See, though, though God would have been totally justified in utterly decimating his people, yet the Lord says, judgment is not the only word. By his word of grace, he will also preserve a remnant of his people. Now, why is this in the Bible for us? What effect might this have on our life? Well, 1 Kings 19 is, is a chapter for discouraged and weary servants. Those who trust uh, in the Lord, but then look at the church and look, uh, whether that be outside the walls or inside the walls here, and they find themselves despairing. It was God's uh, people, it was Israel's faithlessness that had left a gaping wound in Elijah's heart and caused him to despair. I wonder, do you ever look at the church? Do you ever look at God's people and grieve by what you see? In certain corners of the American church, false teaching is promoted under the banner of Christianity. It seems at times like when we look at the church, the world has a greater influence on the church than the church on the world. Maybe you look and you see that there's a shallowness or a triteness in the way that we speak about God and the things of God. Many languish in churches that cling to a dry, lifeless orthodoxy, not knowing the life and joy that should come through our being united to Jesus. Or we look and we see that the word is not applied, that there are, in spite of, of people hearing the word and knowing the word, knowing what is expected, we see men failing to love their wives, we see wives failing to honor their husbands, we see a bitterness that is held to steadfastly. We see holiness not being strived for. See people stuck, entangled in sin. Maybe you see this in the areas of ministry that you're engaged in. That there just it doesn't seem like there's any fruit. You're you're working diligently, prayerfully. You think that you've been faithful, and yet people remain stuck where they were. Certainly, Elijah knew such discouragement, as would the people that uh, would read 1 Kings uh, for the first time, the, the first audience of this book. 1 Kings, the, the first audience was those who were stuck in exile, and they saw that the church was in a woeful condition. It would have been quite easy for them, just like Elijah, to look around and to give up hope. This is just the way it's going to be. It's just the way it is. But the Lord's response to Elijah is meant as a word of reassurance to his discouraged servant. It's meant as a word of reassurance to us as well. How so? Well, our passage reminds us that God is at work. Though maybe we need to adjust our expectations. Not lower them, that's not what I'm saying, but we need to adjust them. The Lord comes to Elijah and he tells him that he will continue to be at work, though it won't be through the sensational or the dramatic the sort of stuff that would have landed on the front pages of the Samaria Free Press. No, God would be at work through his word bringing about judgment and showing grace. This wouldn't attract the same attention that the, uh, or the, the same uh, slack-jawed looks that would have come at, at Mount Carmel, but this is how God was intending to work. 
And it was a powerful work. It was a work that would elevate kings, anoint prophets, exercise judgment. But for our own purposes, we should look at this. And and if our expectation is that uh, God's dealings will primarily be in the overt and the dramatic, we'll be tempted to despair because we'll think that God's not working. That's not what our passage leads us to conclude. See, God sends forth his word to do his bidding. Often quietly, without pomp and circumstance. Uh, we don't, uh, it's not something uh, that's attended with a lot of fanfare. And yet his word will not return void. It will not fail to accomplish what he intends. It's still a word of power. God's at work, even if there aren't uh, Mount Carmel's to point to. His word goes out Sunday after Sunday through the preaching of the word. And it sets to work quietly, sometimes undetected, bringing judgment on some who will reject it and graciously turning others to himself. If you're engaged in in ministry here, maybe it's as an elder or a deacon or a counselor or a group leader, perhaps you're discouraged because uh, that ministry, whatever ministry you're involved in, uh, it seems... Uh, incredibly ordinary. It's, it's not a Mount Carmel experience. There's no fire raining down from heaven uh, when you pray together in your small group. Well, I think we need to remember that God's way of working is primarily through his word. A word of power, a word that brings judgment, and a word of grace. Secondly, it's important, uh, this is an important passage for the Lord's discouraged uh, discouraged servants to look at because we need to see God's tireless grace and we need to find comfort. Not only was it the case that the Lord was going to continue to work, work uh, by his powerful word, but the way that he would work showed that God was incredibly, remarkably gracious. As we saw, Elijah brought charges against Israel and Elijah's charges were on point. They were true. Israel, uh, in their idolatry, had broken covenant and they deserve nothing but judgment. But the Lord also gives grace, sweet, undeserving favor. Instead of saying that he was going to send Hazael of Syria and he was going to wipe Israel off the face of the map, God says to Elijah, Elijah, I know you're discouraged. And it's for a good reason. And I know what Israel deserves, but I am working. And though it might not be as flashy as Carmel, I've spoken a word of grace. I will cause that there will uh, remain a faithful remnant. I will keep for myself a church. God was promising that despite appearances and despite what his people deserved, he would not forsake his people. Where complete judgment was due, still grace would intervene. Not all was lost. Apostle Paul, you might remember, picks up these words uh, when he, uh, in despair, has looked out at at his fellow Jews in his own day, uh, and uh, he's looked at at their unbelief, uh, and uh, he turns to this passage as a stabilizer against despair and and discouragement. In Romans 11, he takes God's word, uh, and he he takes what God has said here, that God would keep for himself this remnant of 7,000, and he applies it to his own day, saying, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. This passage is meant to reassure God's despairing, 
discouraged servants, that his gracious character means that his church will stand, that his purposes will be accomplished, that ministry is meaningful. For as Paul saw, by grace, the God who entered into a covenant with his people has determined that he would have a people for himself. And he's purchased a people for himself through the willing sacrifice of his son, Jesus. And he's promised that all those who are are chosen by grace will be brought to glory by grace. And so this passage tells us that we need not despair. We're discouraged uh, when it seems like uh, what we expect God to do is not quite happened yet. When we look at the church and we go, why is it this way? We look to this passage and say, the Lord cares deeply for his church. He has gracious purposes for his church. He will preserve his church and we need not despair. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you are a God who is not uh, idle. You're a, a God who... Um, uh, you're a God who is working. You're a God whose word goes forth and doesn't return void. You're a God whose word is incredibly powerful. You're a God who, who, uh, who by your word, you are, uh, Lord, not just bringing judgment as we deserve it, but you are bringing grace. And so, Lord, we, we pray that we, as your church, would see your gracious purposes. We're tempted to despair when the growth that we'd hope to see is not, uh, does not come as quick as we'd, we'd like, when sin still remains, when the church remains a mixture of, of weakness and impurity. Or let us, let us remember that you are active. You're preserving your church. You love her, and you're gracious. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.